Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the doctorscore.com doctor rating website. We've got a great show today. We're going to be speaking about complementary and alternative medicine. Before we do, I just want to say a few words about the current health care reform efforts that are going through Congress. The House and Senate have passed legislation that the president has signed, and we now have health care reform. Our guest last week, Peter Ferrara, would say that this is horrible. This is a government takeover of American medicine. Well, the bill is passed and signed, and the sky has not yet fallen down. It's interesting. Um, several shows back, we had Dan Ariely talking to us about behavioral economics. And one of the points he made is that people are much more concerned about losing things than they are about gaining things. And I think this will probably happen with respect to health care reform. Now that health care reform has taken place, we now have a system in which uh, children can stay on their parents' health plans through the age of 26. Uh, insurers can't suddenly drop you because of pre-existing conditions. These are all great changes that the public's not going to want to give up. Now, it remains to be seen how popular or unpopular this um, mandate is that where you have to purchase health insurance. However, um, while we may not have felt so strongly about the potential gains associated with keeping our kids on our health plans longer or not being able to... Um, not, insurers not being able to kick people off because of pre-existing conditions. Now that we have those things, we're not going to want to lose them. And so I imagine that, that health care, our health care system is going to continue to evolve over time. Shows like this that discuss the health care system are going to continue to be important. Um, but I will say, again, that the sky has not fallen. Our health care system is still fabulous in so many ways. American physicians are outstanding at what they do. They offer patients incredible, incredible miracles, great diagnostic skills, testing, amazing medications and surgical interventions. None of those things are disappearing anytime soon. Um, with the help of our pharmaceutical industry, we have life-altering medicines that really improve people's, the, the lives of people who have horrible chronic diseases. We may not have all that many outright cures, but perhaps we'll move in that direction. It's conceivable with health care reform, some of those things will slow, but they're not disappearing. Now, we have all those modern-day miracles, but it's still not enough for many patients. Um, many patients are seeking more than just a diagnosis of their condition and a pill to take for it. They're seeking a more holistic approach um, to their care. And there are a growing number of doctors who want to offer 
patients a more holistic approach. Patients, I think, want treatments that aren't drugs. The drugs are scary. Herbs sound pleasant. Patients like the idea of natural remedies, as though the medications that we, pres- we physicians prescribe are unnatural products. Uh, many patients would just as soon use a home remedy. When you survey patients, they'll tell you, well, 30 to 40% of patients will tell you they're using alternative treatments. I suspect that that's just the tip of an iceberg. I suspect that there are a whole lot more patients who are trying things at home, who are modifying the medication regimens, using them in ways that doctors didn't recommend, trying things that their grandmother or their Aunt Mildred had recommended. There's a growing effort within the medical community to address patients' concerns in this regard and um, to, to treat patients in a more holistic fashion, to offer patients complementary uh, to the traditional medications. And as we'll discuss, there's certainly advantages to this as well as potential pitfalls. Uh, we have on our show today Dr. Kathy Kemper. She is the Carol Guth Chair for the Center for Integrative Medicine at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. She is internationally recognized as an authority on complementary therapy. Dr. Kemper uh, got her bachelor's degree from the same place I did, the University of Chicago, back in the 1970s. Uh, she uh, received a a master's in public health from the University of North Carolina, uh, where she also did her pediatric residency. Um, uh, I'm sorry, she, uh, where she also um, did her work in preventive medicine. She did pediatric residency at the University of Wisconsin and did a fellowship at Yale. She then served on the faculty at Yale, the University of Washington, and Harvard before joining the Wake Forest University of, uh, School of Medicine as a professor in the Department of Pediatrics, as well as in as in social science and health policy, family and community medicine, regenerative medicine, and bioethics. She was the founder and chair of the Section for Complementary and Integrative Medicine of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's the author of two books. Um, One, The Holistic Pediatrician, was published in its second edition in 2001, and she just came out with a second book, a wonderful book entitled Mental Health Naturally, The Family Guide to Holistic Care for a Healthy Mind and Body. Kathy, welcome to our program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I, um, I picked up my copy of Mental Health Naturally, The Family Guide to Holistic Care for a Healthy Mind and Body, and your earlier work, The Holistic Pediatrician. Um, I want to start with something that was in the introduction of your your earlier book, The Holistic Pediatrician, and that's um, what we mean by alternative, complementary, or holistic medicine. But to define that first, um, can you define what we mean by traditional medicine and, <laughs> and, and its limitations? Well, I will do my best. I don't actually know if there's a standard definition of conventional medicine, um, but it, I think most of us tend to think of traditional medicine as medicine that's based on uh, biomedicine, biomedical science, and that focuses to a large extent on chemistry and physiology and biochemistry. 
Uh, it's based on a differential diagnosis, and we tend to try to make a clear diagnosis before we uh, dispense a medication or recommend a surgical treatment or radiation. So the, the primary treatments would be we tend to think of as medication and surgery, although, of course, we believe in healthy lifestyles and preventive strategies like immunizations. And in pediatrics, we talk a lot about preventive um, measures like car seats and turning down the hot water temperature and being sun safe and that sort of thing as well. There's a pie of, of different kinds of health care and how we slice it and, and make these definitions, I'm not sure how important they are. I, You know, I came to medicine from a very chemical, physical background and I used to think of traditional medicine as medicine that has been scientifically proven effective. Is that a, a poor way to look at it? Because perhaps that encompasses a lot of things you would consider holistic? Uh, I think that it's generous to say that what we've done has been scientifically proven. <laughs> you know, there's uh, when I started medical school some years ago, I remember the dean saying that only 10% of what they taught us would be true 50 years from now. They just didn't know which 10% that yes. would be because there had been so little research to evaluate the effectiveness. And I can give you an example. When we, uh, we were, were pretty contemporaneous, when we were training and um, going through residency, we were taught that babies should start with rice cereal and then have vegetables and then have fruits and then have meats. So we were given this very um, strict guideline for the order in which foods should be introduced to infants. And we were told nothing but breast milk for the first four months, and then you start with the rice cereal or it could be oatmeal liberalized in the 80s. Um, and and you avoid any foods that might be allergenic until the baby's a year old or maybe even two years old if they come from a family with a lot of allergies. Well, in the last year, we've learned that's completely wrong. There was no science behind that at all. It was what somebody thought was a good idea. And it turns out that really quite a lot of things that we recommend uh, somebody thought was a good idea. It's not that there are malicious people out there, but our good ideas are not always based in science. Another thing we thought was a good idea for a long time was uh, when babies were born prematurely, their lungs weren't fully developed, and we thought for a long time that, you know, they need extra oxygen so that their brains aren't deprived of oxygen and they can develop normally. And it turned out that doing that made the blood vessels grow in the black back of their eyes and caused many of them to become blind. In fact, the person who discovered that recently died um, at the age of 89, but he had uh, thought that maybe oxygen was to blame for this epidemic of blindness in premature babies. And when he tried to do the studies, he was turned down by NIH and told this was unethical. When he tried to find other ways to do it, the nurses would come in at night. He would randomize the babies to either get the usual 100% oxygen or turn it down to 50% oxygen. And the nurses were so distressed by this that at night they would turn all the babies back to 100%. So we had a very difficult time even evaluating this. And now we know, of course, he was, he was correct. But, um, you know, the things that we do that we think are a good idea that turn out not to be such a good idea. Another example is the fear of fat in the 80s and 90s led many, many people to eat, eat diets that were high in sugar, which ended up being worse for their waistlines and their blood sugar. So um, we try to practice scientific medicine, but many times we're just doing the best we can with a limited amount of data. 
quite an indictment of what we do now. <laughs> That's, uh, I, uh, well, I hope it's not all um, the equivalent of 100% oxygen for little kids. <laughs> Um, from your book, The Holistic Pediatrician, I'll just read a definition I found of what is holistic medicine. And I'll just start by saying you, you suggest that there's many, many definitions for this. But one that sounded very reasonable, holistic medicine is the foundation of good medicine. It promotes the well-being and optimal functioning of the child in the context of family, culture, and community. Holistic practitioners see the whole child, body, mind, emotions, spirit, and relationships with others. From a variety of potential treatments, holistic practitioners choose those that are best suited to the individual child and family and integrate those therapies into a unique plan for each child and family. Oh, that sounds so nice. It's, I think, a long-winded way of saying patient-centered care, personalized patient-centered care. Um, so, you know, it goes by many names, but I, I think it's the kind of care that all of us can agree is good medicine. Well, I think I agree with that at this point. Um, again, I come from, a, you know, a very chemistry, math, physics-focused kind of background and, and, and planned a career in research in medicine, but wanted to see patients too, and I picked dermatology figuring, well, I could... That's kind of a manageable area. I could do research and practice. And um, within dermatology, I picked one little area to focus on, psoriasis care. And I swear, I could walk into a room and make the diagnosis of psoriasis from across the room. And I could know exactly what medication to prescribe for patients from across the room. And I could write them the prescription as I walked toward them, hand them the prescription, and know that I gave them great, I'll add the word, traditional medical care. Um, this is the farthest thing from that. Well, I think it depends a little bit on what your goal is. I think I have a very simplistic way of summarizing what I think of as mainstream medicine, which is um, triage, test, diagnose, and dispense. It's very quick. You've walked in. You know, if they've gotten a dermatology clinic, they're probably there for a skin problem. You see their skin. You don't even need a test other than your eyeballs. Uh, you diagnose and you dispense, and, and that's the mainstream model. But I think there's something more to the relationship, and I suspect while some people might want nothing more than a, a sort of technical um, information, advice, and prescription, other people want something more in terms of a relationship, reassurance, support, knowing they're not alone, they're not crazy, they're not bad. Um, so they may want something more than a prescription out of the interaction. There's a tremendous variety. For some people, what you described may be just the perfect thing that they want. Yeah, some of these, um, some of my patients, farmers who come in, haven't seen a doctor in 50 years, really don't want to be there, and they're just happy getting the right diagnosis, the right treatment, and get out. Um, yes, and sometimes I think, though, that I like the way you've put this, uh, triage, diagnose, treat, and dispense. Um, did I get that right? Triage, test, diagnose, and dispense. Triage, test, diagnose, and dispense. And, uh, you know, I find that um, if you want to be effective, then maybe part of that triage and test is an assessment of the patient's psychological state and whether they want that traditional model or a more holistic model. And in terms of... Um, of of dispensing um, 
one can dispense just a medication or one can dispense a feeling of caring and of support. Um, and so I'm not sure that, that these two models are, well, I'm pretty sure that, they, that there's quite a bit of overlap between them. I think there's a common core, although some of us may have, have gravitated more towards chemistry and others of us more towards behavioral science. I think there's still a common core. Well, tell us, um, what do people mean when they talk about alternative and complementary medicine? I understand that something like it, well, it used to be maybe a third of patients were using complementary medicine, um, alternative treatments. The numbers were up to 40%. I think those numbers vastly underestimate the true the, the, the true use of alternative therapies. I think probably just about everybody is trying something before they see the doctor or in addition to, to whatever the doctor tells them to do, or they, they modify what the doctor says to do to, to fit their, their um, I don't want to say whims, but uh, something along those lines. I think it depends very much on how you define it. So you've brought up a really important question about what exactly is this thing called complementary medicine. Um, I was uh, at an acupuncture conference today in Chapel Hill, and I think most of us would say, oh, yeah, acupuncture, that definitely fits in that category. Um, but it turns out that a survey done about the year 2000, so 10 years ago now, of pediatric pain treatment centers across North America, both in the U.S. and in Canada, showed that a third of them offered acupuncture services. So it's becoming pretty mainstream to offer acupuncture services. Now, it wasn't something that you or I learned in medical school. So um, in the early 90s, David Eisenberg defined complementary medicine as things that weren't taught in medical school, weren't offered in U.S. hospitals, and weren't covered by American insurance. So it's kind of a, a classification by exclusion. Mm -hmm. But it breaks down a little bit because things are coming into American hospitals. Um, more and more medical schools are teaching about a variety of kinds of therapies and diagnostic systems, and insurance companies are increasingly paying for different things. And even when you start to get into specific categories, and uh, for a while I did a lot of education about dietary supplements, um, so we think, oh, yeah, supplements, that's not medication, that's definitely complementary. But in pediatrics, we routinely give vitamin K shots to every newborn, and we recommend vitamin D to every nursing infant. So things like vitamins are pretty routinely recommended, uh, at least for some people at, at some stages of life. And um, I like to give the example when I give talks to physician groups about how many people in this room uh, use herbal remedies. And, you know, 15 years ago when I would give talks, almost nobody would raise their hand. Now maybe 20% of people raise their hand. If I put up a picture of a Starbucks store, people just start laughing because they realize that coffee is indeed an herbal remedy that most of us use on a pretty regular basis to enhance our cognitive function. But it's just because it's such a part of our culture, it's become invisible to us as an herbal remedy. That's fascinating. Um, you're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're talking with Dr. Kathy Kemper. She's the Carol Guth Chair for the Center of Integrative Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Kathy, um, your book, Mental Health Naturally, 
um, describes a, um, a multi-level way of thinking about um, natural, natural healing, um, starting with a, a broad foundation. Is that, is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. I think that the foundation of all kinds of health care, whether it's mental health, physical health, is focusing on the fundamentals. And when I talk about the fundamentals for good health, um, I summarize it with the phrase healthy habits in a healthy habitat. So there's four categories of healthy habits. Uh, the healthy habitat is obviously our environment, and we can talk about the different aspects of the environment, but the four healthy habits are uh, good nutrition, uh, a good balance of exercise and sleep, uh, being able to manage our emotions and our stress level, being a friend to ourselves, and then the, the fourth of the healthy habits is good communication skills and developing supportive relationships with other people. So you can summarize those with the five F's if you're a word kind of person. So food, fitness, friendship with self, friendship with others, and fields or the healthy environment. Very good. So let's start off with um, exercise, sleep, and nutrition. I, I noticed you put those things in the book first, too. Um, gosh, that sounds like good advice. Regular exercise, how much? dose of exercise. Um, the, the American Heart Association and the American Cancer Society are pretty close on the, on the uh, recommenda recommended dose of exercise being between 30 and 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise at least five days a week. So that I, I can hardly argue with those uh, recommendations. And it turns out that it's good for not only your heart and your immune system, but probably also good for your brain, your mood. Um, anxiety, uh, exercise is really good for you. Obviously, if you have um, a disability or an impairment in some way, um, a gentle exercise is a good thing, a yoga, tai chi. Uh, people always say, well, what's the best exercise? And my answer is the one that you will enjoy and you will do. Because if I tell you, you know, running five miles is the best thing, you say, I really hate running, <laughs> that's not going to work very well. And if somebody told me I had to swim every day, I would just hate that because I'm not really a swimmer. But So what, whatever you will do is probably the best thing for you. That's great. That reminds me of which is the best kind of sunscreen when my patients ask me. And it's, well, there's so many different sprays and lotions and ointments. They wonder, well, which one's best? It's like, well, whichever one you like putting on is... Is, is, is clearly the best. I imagine you don't have a problem with too much exercise in children. That that's probably not not a worry, is it? Not in young children. The problem in uh, teenagers is the kids with eating disorders who get into overexercising as a way of of hyper controlling their weight. Mm. But fortunately, that's not particularly common. And then sleep. Uh, I like this part. You know, I'm a, I'm a napper. So uh, how mu how much sleep should we be getting? More than we're getting. <laughs> I, I think your nap idea is a wonderful idea. Um, Americans sleep about 10% less than our, our great-grandparents did, thanks to wonderful advances like electric lights. We, have, we can easily flip a switch. We don't have to worry about burning a candle or a kerosene lamp or something like that. So we have plenty of light anytime we need it, and we have all these really entertaining 
late-night TV shows and just one more TV show or one more news show before we turn off the lights and go to bed. So we're actually sleeping probably on average 60 to 90 minutes less than our ancestors did, and so we're probably all a little bit sleep-deprived. Obviously, there's a lot of variability in how much sleep different people need. I like nine hours a night, but I have a good friend who's very happy and active on five hours a night. My general recommendation for adults is between seven and nine hours. Yeah, I figure if you wake up feeling rested, ready to start the day and excited about it, you're you're getting the right amount of sleep. I think that's exactly right. Very well put. Um, nutrition. You know, I, I think it, we we are we live in a very wealthy country. We're very lucky. We ought to be eating a healthy diet. Um, we probably could have a separate show on diet. I, I noticed in your book the the one thing one of the things I noticed was midnight snacks being associated with higher rates of depression. I I thought that was interesting, and I, I just assumed it was the depressed people are awake at night and they're eating, and that's why the midnight snacks are associated with depression. I always I always um, find it interesting when I am up late at night watching television um, that the 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 pharmaceutical companies that make antidepressants are advertising their, their antidepressants at that hour, knowing that it's the depressed people who can't fall asleep um, who are up watching TV then. Well, that's an interesting observation. It, it, it is true that um, poor sleep, the inability to fall asleep or get restful sleep, is a very good screening question to find out if somebody's having a mental health issue like anxiety or depression. Because if somebody falls asleep when they want to and sleeps as long as they want to and wakes up feeling refreshed, it's unlikely that they're going to fit a diagnostic criteria for depression or anxiety. Um, Whether or not those late-night snacks actually cause depression, I don't think a causal relationship has been proved. That is, I don't think anybody's done a randomized controlled trial and kept kept people up in order to feed them a huge dinner at midnight. Mm. Uh, But the observation certainly is that people who eat large snacks late at night are more likely to be diagnosed with depression. And your point is a good one. It's hard to know which is the chicken and which is the egg in that situation. My favorite part of your book, Mental Health Naturally, uh, are the sections on communication. And I think that was very insightful of you to, to consider communication to be part of the foundation of healthy living. Oh, thanks. Um, I guess um, my background in psychology, and I'm influenced by my, my time in college and learning from Uh, some of the pioneers in social psychology who found that social support was really protective against almost any kind of physical health challenge that that was uh, evaluated. And so if it's, it's a little bit like exercise, if it could be bottled and sold as a pharmaceutical, we'd be recommending it for everything. So uh, it was intriguing to me when I went to medical school after learning that uh, in psychology classes about how helpful social support was that we didn't have any classes in medical school about how to foster social support. So when I was writing the book, I thought I would um, take the opportunity to go see what I could find about that area. So there's one chapter about communicating with ourselves because you know, we used to say, oh, he's talking to himself, he's, he's crazy. But it turns out that all of us are carrying on this little internal monologue comment, commenting on what we're doing or planning or reflecting almost all the time. 
And the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves and about what we're experiencing turns out to be really important for um, our mood and our confidence um, and is a big target for things like cognitive behavioral therapy and can help us feel better both physically and, and mentally if we can learn some new habits. Yeah, the scientist in me says that, you know, there must be a neurotransmitter in there that determines whether I'm saying uplifting or downgrading things to myself about myself. That's, it may be, there may be a mediation by a neurotransmitter, but if you make the decision and you practice a new skill, it's just like um, there must be uh, a chemical in your muscle that makes it bigger. But if you go to the gym every day and start lifting weights, your muscle will get bigger. Yep. You don't. You don't have to know the name of the neurotransmitter to know that if you start exercising that muscle, the muscle will get bigger. And it turns out, if we start exercising certain patterns of thought, they get easier to, um, to you know, to happen spontaneously and naturally. I'll say naturally, sort of in quotes. But the more we practice thinking positively about ourselves and our situation, the more we look on the bright side. The more we practice feeling gratitude. The more we reach out to other people, the more we interact with other people, the better we feel. So there probably is a neurotransmitter or a bunch of nerves that tell us we're worthless. And um, <laughs> the more we exercise those nerves, the, the worse it's going to be. But we can get past our genetic predisposition or our environmental forces that, that cause those, those nerves to act the way they do by practicing practicing speaking up to ourselves i'm i am going to work on that that I, I think that's another great insight um well those are the foundations and um you know i think when people hear mental health naturally they're thinking of dietary supplements but that that's sort of uh, more the the point of the pyramid i, I get the sense that, that that's a higher level um issue but one we should certainly talk about well, I agree with you. I think the foundations are really the, the healthy habits and the healthy habitat. And no uh, amount of herbs or dietary supplements are a substitute for um, eating fast food every day and then feeling guilty about it. <laughs> You're going to eat poorly and feel bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. An herb isn't going to make you feel a lot better and isn't going to fix it for you. You need to really focus on those fundamentals at the beginning. Um, but after that, there are some natural therapies, and I guess things like um, St. John's wort are the most well-known, and they have um, had some positive effects in trials. There's a, the whole issue of randomized controlled trials of both medications and dietary supplements is a rich area of conversation and controversy because the, the placebo effect is so strong in many of these studies, and because of the diversity of studies looking at um, not only using different outcome measures, but also different doses of medication. And then I think really importantly, looking at people with different severity of illness. So in the depression trials, most of the trials in the U.S. have been done by psychiatrists for people with moderately severe or very severe major depressive disorder. The studies that have been done in Europe have been primarily conducted in general practices for people with mild to moderate depression, the kind of people who might go to their family doctor for depression rather than the kind of people who would go to a psychiatrist for depression. 
And lo and behold, things like St. John's wort, which, by the way, is regulated more stringently in Europe, so you're more likely to be getting a pure and potent product, um, show better efficacy than the studies in the U.S. So there's a lot of different things going into those into the different outcomes in the studies. But by and large, even in the U.S., the studies, the famous study that was done at Duke um, comparing St. John's wort to an SSRI to placebo showed that they were all pretty much the same. Mm. Um, and the headlines, of course, said St. John's wort is no better than placebo, but the truth was that St. John's wort was just as effective as the SSRI, which also was not any better than placebo. Yeah. So, um, boy, you raised some uh, an issue. You say the the products are more pure in Europe than in the U.S. Yes, the U.S. regulates food, uh, regulates herbs under the FDA. Uh, it, you know, the FDA has regulatory powers over foods and drugs, um, and in the U.S., herbs and dietary supplements are regulated more like food mm-hmm. than like drugs. So if we go and buy oh, Tylenol, let's say, in North Carolina, we're getting the same Tylenol whether in, we're in North Carolina or California or New York, and we're getting the same uh, basic product, whether we're getting uh, a brand-name Tylenol or we're getting generic acetaminophen, whether we're in North Carolina, New York, or California. The same is not true for a tomato, so if you buy tomatoes in Florida or New York or Maine or wherever, you could be getting something grown in a greenhouse. Uh, you could be getting an organic one. You could be getting, you know, one that's two weeks old or one that was just picked yesterday. And as a consumer, you're expected to use your wisdom about tomatoes to pick out the best tomato for you. And most of us who have grown up eating tomatoes would recognize a tomato that we want to eat compared to one that's gotten mushy or has Mm -hmm. spots on it or something like that. The problem is that if we're going to the same grocery store, we're going to a pharmacy and we're buying St. John's wort, um, even if we knew what St. John's wort looked like out in the field and we knew the best time of year to pick it and the part of the plant to use, we would no longer recognize it once it was made into a pill or a capsule. And so this, the sort of common sense thinking about how to pick out a tomato or a banana or a piece of broccoli really doesn't serve us very well if we're a consumer trying to figure out which brand of an herbal product to buy. In most of the European Union countries, on the other hand, they regulate herb, herbal products more like medications than like food so that you can be sure when you go to Germany or Switzerland or France, you're getting the same kind of quality of product. I have the sense in the United States things are even worse than that. That As a physician, when I prescribe a prescription drug, I know exactly what the patient should be getting. There should be almost zero lot-to-lot variability. Like you say, it's going to be the same anywhere in the country. Um, When a patient goes and buy some Chinese herbs from wherever they, I don't even know where you buy Chinese herbs, but wherever they get them, um, there may be, they may be adulterated with prednisone, um, things that are supposedly natural male enhancement products may be adulterated with Viagra, um, uh, products to lower your cholesterol may be adulterated with a statin. Uh, you, I get the sense you really don't know what you're getting a lot of the time. 
Well, that's particularly true with products from developing countries. We all know what happened with the melamine scare of other things that were imported from China. So I think it behooves us to be a little skeptical about things that are imported from developing countries. We know from studies in the 1980s that things imported from India contained heavy metals like mercury, cadmium, lead. Uh, we know that's also true of products, some products imported from Mexico. And the melamine from China, remind me? Oh, that was in um, uh, baby formula and in dog food. Mm. And it, what did it cause? Uh, kidney failure. Caused kidney failure, wow. They're still having uh, children with long-term kidney failure from uh, contaminated formula in China. Now, even if, uh, even if we knew these products weren't adulterated, I still am missing what it is that patients find preferable about something that's labeled natural or herbal. Presumably, if these drugs, I'm sorry, if these products, these herbs, have an effect, that's because there's some drug in them that, that we may not have discovered yet that's helpful. But then, in addition to that drug, there's all the other chemicals in there that we don't know what they do. And whatever drug is in there that's working, it hasn't been tested for safety. So I'm just wondering, what is the attraction about taking something um, that's labeled natural over something that's scientifically tested for safety and efficacy? Well, some of it is an aesthetic consideration. And, um, you know, there's, there's no accounting for taste, as they say. But let me ask you, maybe I can ask, ask answer your question with a question. Maybe I'll ask you a personal question. Do you drink coffee? No, I try to avoid caffeine. You know, when I uh, take my family for a long trip, for a long drive, I will drink a Coke or some coffee, and I I am wired like crazy. I use it it as a drug, but but I don't take caffeine pills. I guess I could. That would be another way to do it. <laughs> you could, but you, you, know, you know what I'm getting at. You have colleagues who drink coffee probably all day long. All day long. Um, and very few of us who are trained as physicians would instead pop no-dose pills. Correct. And because, our, because our culture is coffee. And it's, you know, it has all these complex flavors and there's social connotations and there's, a, you know, all these other associations we have with it. And you know that there's tremendous variability, whether you get it at Starbucks or McDonald's or you get Folgers or whether you get um, an espresso or you get drip or you, you know, make it in a sock when you're camping. There's many different ways to prepare it. And so the caffeine content can be quite variable depending on how, where it's grown, how it's made, how much you drink, what's the correct dose of coffee for somebody who drinks coffee. You know, it's all over the map. And yet people continue to drink coffee. And so I think there's something similar going on with a lot of herbs that um, uh, there's something appealing about having something that comes from nature. Uh, it seems friendly or it seems more familiar. Um, you know, for goodness sake, St. John's Word is a flower. So it, it seems lovely to do that. And Or if uh, our, an- our ancestors in medicine not so long ago, I used to work with an, an older family doc who told me that when he was a young physician, he had to weigh out digitalis leaves. And they, they would weigh them on a scale and then put them in an envelope mm. marked with, you know, how, how many... Um, grams per day to take. So it wasn't so long ago that physicians were using plants directly. And I think there's a great skepticism in this country about 
the mad scientist in the white coat, and what is he really doing in that lab? Yeah. Well, um, I, I can certainly see where some people um, would like to avoid the stigma of seeing a psychiatrist, would like to avoid the stigma of taking an antidepressant, and if there was a an herb that actually had the same antidepressant in it, it would be socially perhaps more acceptable than, to them to do that than to take a drug. Well, there's also access issues. Uh, in pediatrics, there's just not enough child psychiatrists to see all the children who are depressed and anxious. Mm. And so there's, there's tremendous access issues to getting in to see a psychiatrist. Um, and it costs something, and then it goes on your insurance, and then you may get labeled with, you know, having a chronic condition. And there's also something very empowering about saying, I'm going to try this myself. I'm not giving up. I'm going to, I'm going to take charge of my own health. That's very empowering for people. I wanted to make sure we covered limitations of, of um, some of the alternative treatments. I think we've done that. Uh, I've taken up a lot of your time already, Kathy. I'm hoping maybe in the last few minutes you could um, – well, we already covered the foundations for uh, mental health naturally. I wonder if you might um, mention some of the the, all, the, the most alternative treatments and, and, uh, that you think um, may be particularly beneficial to people. What are other thoughts you want to share with our audience before we quit? Thanks for that opportunity. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of professionally provided uh, therapies that I think can be helpful for a lot of people. One of them is massage. And while some people might associate massage with the entertainment industry, as it were, mm -hmm. it also has very uh, beneficial effects physically and mentally. Uh, massage can be really helpful in decreasing depression. It can help improve sleep. We know this in little babies, and that's one reason why it's become commonplace to offer massage in many uh, newborn nurseries, particularly for premature infants, and it can help uh, child development. So we know that massage is very helpful. There's, a, there's also some studies on at improving attention and decreasing anxiety. So uh, what I recommend for many of my patients is that they go get a professional massage with a family member, and the family member learns some techniques or uh, get a book or a DVD or something because some people feel uncomfortable doing it unless they've had some kind of training. So most of the studies have looked at pretty frequent massage, and the only way to make that um, feasible at all, and, in in, you know, given our pocketbooks, is to have a family member provide it. Is, is massage distinct from um, healing touch? Yeah, that's a very good question. There's a technique called healing touch, and it sounds like massage, but it's actually more closely related to things like Reiki or Qigong or an earlier technique called therapeutic touch. And this is being taught mostly in nursing schools and transmitted through nurses in different institutions. It's a very gentle kind of touch in which the hands may be just very lightly on the body or not even touching the body at all, but kind of move gently over the area just, just outside of the body. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds weird, uh, or like Anton Mesmer with his magnetic passes or something like that. But um, in my experience, people find it very soothing and comforting. It can decrease anxiety, it can improve sleep, and it can help people feel more comfortable. I have no idea how it works. I, I was going to ask if you think it's, <laughs> it's related to that um, 
communicating with others um, component of the foundation of mental health? It may be that just human-to-human interaction and knowing that somebody cares about you is, is the key to it. I've seen it work with uh, little babies who, you know, don't seem to, you know, th- th- there wouldn't be an expectation there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but they seem to fall asleep more quickly when they receive it. So I really don't know what's going on there. I do know that, that our bodies extend farther than our skin. We know we can feel heat, you know, an inch or two away from our skin. We know that the EKG, now that we've got these very sensitive um, uh, electromagnetic uh, sensing devices, our EKG signal extends 8 to 10 feet beyond our body that we can measure with those devices. So whether or not there's some interaction there, I just have no idea. Were there, besides massage, were there any other professional um, techniques that you wanted to mention? Acupuncture can also be really helpful, believe it or not, uh, though most of us would have a little sympathetic surge with the idea of anybody putting needles into it. Um, when, once you actually get the treatment, many people fall asleep with the needles in, and it can help with sleep, it can help with um, mood, and it can also help with anxiety. So uh, acupuncture can be very helpful, and increasingly insurance pays for acupuncture. Wow. Anything else? Um, I think those are the main ones. Very good. Um, uh, Kathy Kemper, author of Mental Health Naturally, The Family Guide to Holistic Care for a Healthy Mind and Body. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love Dr. Kemper's approach to medicine. My biomedical approach could stand to learn a lot from her. And uh, she's very convincing to me. Uh, I love this idea that there's a pyramid and that at the base, the foundation of good health is getting regular exercise, getting plenty of rest, eating a healthy diet, staying away from cigarettes, um, those sorts of things. A medical treatment, hey, that's great too. You know, have a personal physician that you trust, um, take your medicines regularly as prescribed, um, there's great diagnostic, surgical, and medical services in our healthcare system. And then in addition to that, there's, there are good alternative treatments that a holistic-oriented physician can tell you about to complement these medical treatments. At this time, when we think so much about our healthcare system and healthcare reform, let me just say there are so many good people, so many great doctors, and all the other people in our healthcare system who are just truly fabulous, wonderful individuals. Uh, we have so much medical knowledge, so much scientific knowledge. We have so many resources uh, in this great country of ours devoted to healthcare. Our medical system is a great one, and these changes in healthcare reform are not going to grossly change any of those those factors that I've just mentioned. Yeah, around the edges there may be some change, some for the better, maybe some for the worse, but the sky is not falling on our healthcare system. We have, we have great healthcare here. But you as an individual have to take some responsibility. You have to know how to navigate our healthcare system, and you have to take personal responsibility for your own health. You should do that, as Dr. Kemper recommends, by taking care of your foundation. I'd encourage you, get a a doctor, um, a a primary care doctor, uh, who will keep an eye on you and follow their advice. 
I encourage you to give all your doctors feedback. Um, the doctorscore.com website is a great way to give your doctor feedback, let them know how they're doing, whether they're meeting your needs, um, to give them positive reinforcement for the things they're doing well. Um, because at their foundation uh, of giving great service to their patients, they really do need the feedback uh, in order to know what they're doing well and what they can do better. Well, I want to thank you for joining us again today. If you have comments about our show or ideas for future shows, feel free to contact me through the drscore.com website. That's sfeldman at drscore.com. Our theme music this week by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Next week, we'll be speaking to a representative from the Red Cross about the many ways that they contribute to our healthcare system and the care of people who are suffering um, in disaster situations. Until next time, I wish you a happy and healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.